The ongoing dispute over the coastal gas link pipeline and its route through First Nations land has posed a major problem for the Trudeau government. Blockades of rail lines in support of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who oppose the project have created anger directed at a prime minister whose message has focused on communication as the solution. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. Today, National Post columnist John Iveson joins me to talk about the politics of ending the blockades and whether this hurts the PM's vision of reconciliation. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on all your favorite listening platforms, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, you name it, we're on it. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, John, I mean, as we sit in our respective offices uh, recording this episode on on Thursday morning, there there are appear to be some developments happening on this, and there could be further talks between government officials and and Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. But I, I do want to kind of talk about that, even if we get to that point where we may see some developments around the original blockade of a forestry road out in remote BC that. We're dealing with some pretty kind of deep-seated issues here that, that may not get resolved overnight. I'm just wondering, what are we looking at in terms of what the government needs to do to address some of these and, and move things along? Well, some of these issues are pretty intractable, and I think that some of the hereditary leadership from the Wet'suwet'en are, are particularly intractable. I'm not sure there's anything much that the government or anybody else can do to satisfy the demands of, of one or two of these individuals. I mean, they... The Conservative motion in the House of Commons on Thursday was acknowledging the fact that uh, the majority of Wet'suwet'en First Nation members were in favour of this pipeline going through. Mm -hmm. They also claimed that the majority of the hereditary chiefs were in favour. Now, that's slightly more dubious, but I think that it's not clear the internal governance of this, uh, the Wet'suwet'en nation, who who some of these people are. I mean, there there were... there are apparently 13 hereditary chiefs. A number of those posts are vacant. There are currently five head chiefs who are opposed to this project. And at least two of those people, their positions are disputed. There were three women who were hereditary chiefs who had the title stripped from them because they were in favour of the project. So there seems to be a lot, an awful lot of manipulation within the hereditary chief, chief system of this nation which make it seem difficult to see how anybody could satisfy what they want. Their first demand was that the RCMP get out of the immediate area, which the RCMP have apparently agreed to. The other demand is that the the pipeline stops, ceases, and all the equipment's removed. Now, that seems to be not a position of negotiation, but just a, a demand which is not likely to be met, and therefore the thing rolls on and on and on. It seemed that the rhetoric, you know, if it hadn't already been heated at the federal political scene already, things kind of blew over this week where you had Andrew Scheer barred from uh, taking part in meetings with the prime minister and the, and the prime minister really getting hammered on the idea that his government hasn't done anything to deal with the issue other than say we need to have conversations. How bad do you think this week has been for the prime minister politically speaking, on this issue? Well, I think he's beleaguered, bewildered, and short of options. You know, I have some sympathy with him in that I'm sure he's getting advice from the security side of 
things from the police and from the military saying, you know, we've got to be cautious here. This thing could really blow up. If we shut down one demonstration, we could see five emerge in sympathy with it. So, you know, he has to be cautious in what he says and what he does. At the same time, Canadians are frustrated. And Andrew Scheer was voicing those frustrations. He was saying this is a weak response. He's pointing out that the majority of the band members, there are six Wet'suwet'en First Nation bands created under the Indian Act. Five of them are in support of this development. This project has been known about for six years. Uh, If each of those bands has an election every two years, that's about 15 to 20 elections where people supporting this project have been re-elected. And in fact, I gather that one of the hereditary chiefs tried to get elected and didn't get elected on a ticket of opposing it. So... There's a a massive frustration that the Prime Minister hasn't even pointed this type of fact out, that he hasn't pointed out that while peaceful protest is legitimate, it is not legitimate to engage in civil disobedience that harms others. So, you know, I do think that while the Prime Minister's options are somewhat limited, he hasn't expressed the feelings of the mood in the country. And I'm sure he's hearing that from his caucus. I mean, I would imagine that the the little bit of polling that's been done on this, liberal members are looking at that and going, we're on the wrong side of public opinion here. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't require to to send in the army to make it known that this is not on. You can't just close the country down. You know, it, it may come down to two or three individuals who are wet, so wet and uh, hereditary leaders, and they are holding the country to ransom, and that's not acceptable. You had mentioned in one of your columns uh, in the last few days about how, you know, the prime minister was elected as being the reconciliation prime minister, and he had plans to bring Canada into the 21st century when it comes to relations with its First Nations people. But he's kind of dropped the ball here, and that may have actually created a worse situation than could have been the case had he done the things he said he was going to do. What things has he promised that he's fallen short on? that could have avoided a situation like this? Well, I think this whole dispute is not really so much about pipelines or even climate change, but it's about Indigenous land, Indigenous laws, and the lack of recognition of those things by the state of Canada. And when Trudeau was elected on this promise that First Nations would be the most important relationship to him, in 2018, he stood up in the House of Commons, almost exactly two years ago, and said he was going to bring in a rights recognition framework. It wasn't quite clear what that was going to be. There was going to be a consultation period. But you got the sense that it was along the lines of the the Royal Commission of Aboriginal Peoples, which reported back in 96, uh, and essentially called for the reconstitution of First Nations. There are 630 bands. There were originally somewhere like 80 First Nations. And to get those bands to a size where they were feasible as self-governing units, you had to reconstitute them, rebuild them, let them sort out their own governance system, whether it be hereditary or elected, although you would hope they would be elected in this day and age, and then sit down with them and try and hammer out agreements as far as land settlement, whether there was cash repayments required. We've seen these deals done. The court system has been used to get some of these deals done, like the NISCA, which is 20 years old now, but not too many have followed the NISCA because it is such a costly and cumbersome process to go through the courts. Trudeau had promised to take a shortcut to that by using legislation. Jody Wilson-Raybould was behind the, the initial speech. She was behind the whole initiative. She pushed it the day that Trudeau met her in uh, September 2019, when the whole SNC thing blew up. They met to talk about this initiative. Then SNC happened and the whole thing was forgotten about. That thing has got to get back on the rails, I think. I mean, I think that that 
if there is a silver lining in this whole crisis, it will remind Canadians that there is some unfinished business to be done here. It's going to be messy. It's probably going to be costly. But is it going to be any more costly than years of uncertainty, protests and potential civil unrest? Yeah, I think that if if Canadians were were told that the, the choices were uh, the federal government working out uh, a stronger, better arrangement with First Nations in Canada or uh, intractable disputes over pipelines and, and rail blockades, they would probably choose the former. Right. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think the Canadian people are against native self-government, for example. I don't think they're against land settlements, as long as obviously you're not handing over uh, title to downtown Vancouver or Toronto. And there is a, a recognition, I mean, the polling shows that this week, that the, most Canadian people recognise, three quarters of the Canadian people recognise there were injustices were done and they should be, uh, there should be some restitution. When we talk about the prime minister not necessarily living up to his end of promises related to reconciliation and and relationships between First Nations and the Canadian government, he gets hit for not living up to those promises. When it comes to the Conservative Party, you know, there's been a lot of talk from, you know, Andrew Scheer, uh, leadership candidates like Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole that, that seem to be way in the other direction is where, as opposed to not living up to promises made, they just want to see all of this resistance smashed. Do they take any hits politically for the stance they're taking, or do you think that they're gaining public support by at least being firm, not necessarily on the original blockade in BC, but being firm on the, you know, the rail blockade outside of Belleville, the blockade in Edmonton. Where are they gaining support or potentially losing support here? Well, I think at the moment they're staying on the right side of the line, which is essentially saying the the rule of law must be enforced. Where you potentially cross that line is when the rule of law is enforced. And if conflict emerges from that, then, then maybe it wasn't such a smart idea. I think we do have to be really careful here. I mean, Oka looms large in everybody's memory. You know, there is a, a, a sense, I, I wrote about this the other day, that there's a, uh, some academics at Oxford University looked at how civil unrest and civil war happens. And they said there's little ev- evidence to suggest that it, c- it comes down to motivation, i.e. that it's not because people are aggrieved. The real cause of it is feasibility. Is it feasible to provoke civil unrest and even civil war? And in Canada, it's extremely feasible particularly with the the indigenous population and particularly when it comes to transportation routes. You know, we've got half of the the indigenous population is under 30. Mm -hmm. The transportation routes are long and undefendable and you've got security forces that are lacking in capacity and lacking in the will to enforce the law. It's almost a perfect storm of feasibility. So, you know, you could just imagine the police force or even the military wading into one of these camps, gunfire ensuing, and then holy hell breaking out right across the country. That's what we should all be wanting to avoid. And I think we can avoid it. But, uh, you know, it does require a bit of responsibility and a bit of restraint on behalf of uh, opposition MPs who are trying to make the government look silly. The government's doing quite a good job on its own. You mentioned that the idea that some kind of unrest or violent uprising is feasible in Canada, but... Is it likely? Do we get the sense that there are, there are people within communities that are spoiling for a fight, or is it something that people would just want to avoid anyway? No, I, I, I mean, I'm not looking at this thing on a day-to-day basis, but the, the, some of the people who are suggest it's perhaps less likely now than it was 10 years ago, because, the, because there is a sense that restitution is being made. 
if only through the courts at the moment, which have said, you know, you have to, you have a, a duty to uh, to consult. Free prior and informed consent is required when you're building over land where Ab- Aboriginal title is in question. So I think that, that there was an Inveronics poll last year which suggested that three quarters of Indigenous youth feel that reconciliation is possible if not happening already. So I don't get the sense that there is this uh, powder keg about to go off. Mm-hmm. But I do think that if the government of Canada or even provincial governments behaved irresponsibly, there would be a, a response from First Nations. And, you know, as this report said seven years ago, uh, security in most provinces in this country is what First Nations allow it to be. They have the capacity to be extremely disruptive. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to drive a car onto a rail track, blow it up, and therefore disrupt communications in this country for a week. You mentioned earlier the the idea of rule of law. There's been lots of debate over the last couple of weeks about um, whose side the law is on. Is it as cut and dry as some people would like it to be, uh, both on the pro-First Nation side and the pro government side, I guess. On the blockade, it's pretty clear that, uh, I mean, Mark Garneau, the transport minister, said this week that um, those blockades are in contravention of the Rail Safety Act. So Erin O'Toole, the Conservative candidate, uh, leadership candidate, came out just today, Thursday, and said um, we should deem ports and railways critical infrastructure and therefore blockading them would be a crime. I'm not so sure that that changes anything on the ground because at the moment there are injunctions to clear these blockades in uh, between Toronto and Montreal, and they're not being enforced. So, you know, would, would designating it a crime to blockade them make it any more of a crime? Probably not. Now, if RCMP uh, withdraw from Wet'suwet'en land in BC, that dials down the tension, but how much closer does that get us to a resolution? Well, as I started out saying, I think that there are some hereditary chiefs of this Wet'suwet'en First Nation, or not the First Nation, I've got to get this right, the the Wet'suwet'en Nation comprises six First Nations, and one of those First Nations is the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly complicated. And and I think one of the things about handing self-government back to Indigenous people would be that they would have to resolve these issues themselves. Who speaks on behalf of the the Wet'suwet'en Nation? Is it the hereditary chiefs? Is it the the elected chiefs? And, you know, the way the NISCA sorted this out, for example, and some of the other bands that have gone on towards, or the the other nations that have gone towards self-government, is that you have an elected body and then you have a a kind of consultative body, a House of Lords or a Senate, if you like, that is made up of hereditary chiefs. So there's a kind of hybrid system. That would seem to be the the way forward, but that's up to them. They would have to sort that out. Mm -hmm. Right now, it seems to me that there are some z- zealots here who are trying to make a point and it's very hard to negotiate with zealots. So I'm not optimistic about getting a deal with some of those hered- hereditary chiefs, but I think if the government bends far enough, it will be able to turn around to, to most people, including other indigenous groups, and say, look, we tried as hard as we could to get a deal with these people. All right. Well, it's definitely something that uh, I know might take a while to to unfold and and lots of moving pieces to sort out. Uh, we'll be watching that closely over the next few weeks. John, thanks for your time. Okay, thank you. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, John Iveson. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. 
Thanks for listening.